Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation, an exciting place to be. We recognize it both as privilege and responsibility that we are the one church located on the 14-block-long Nicollet Mall. That fact, plus this church's history of reaching out to the larger community, her desire to be a telling presence in the city, her wish to cooperate with others here in achieving worthy ends, leads to these Thursday noon forums some six times a year. We throw open the doors of this large semicircular sanctuary to all comers without charge to hear a voice, to see a face, sometimes a very familiar voice and a well-known face, sometimes not so. But you always see and hear someone who has earned the right to speak because of his or her accomplishments in a given field important to the general welfare, and always with a permeating ethical awareness and sensitivity. And so it is that we bring to the platform today one Clive Barnes. He is currently associate editor and dance critic for the New York Post. He's also professor of journalism and critical writing at the New York University. But let's go back just a bit. He was born in London in 1927. Since his mother, who was secretary to a theatrical press agent, was given occasional complimentary tickets, Clive Barnes began attending theater and ballet performances when he was a mere eight years old. That's how it all began. Having established himself in Britain as a dance enthusiast and critic, a time at Oxford after World War II having been dedicated to all of that, in 1965, the then managing editor of the New York Times, Clifton Daniel, called Mr. Barnes in London and invited him to become the Times dance critic. The day after his arrival, September 14th, 65, all New York City newspapers went on strike. Cause and effect? We'll have to ask. Two years later, in 1967, Mr. Barnes replaced Walter Kerr, another familiar name, as the daily drama critic of the Times in addition to those other duties. Managing editor Daniel said at the time of Mr. Barnes, he's an intelligent, perceptive, well-informed man who writes very well. He's knowledgeable about the arts, including the theater, and aside from all that, he's a nice fellow. Can a critic be a nice fellow? It depends, I suppose, on which dancer or which actor or which director is reading the review the next morning in the daily paper. There are ethical overtones to all of that, as reflected in Mr. Barnes's own comment 
We want influence, not power. The function of the critic is certainly not to lay down the law. His function is to stimulate thought and opinion, to help people make up their minds. He is sort of a catalyst or bridge between the artist and the audience. Well, Mr. Barnes, we invite you to help us make up our minds. Be a bridge, be a catalyst. And sir, what is the link between a critic's opinion and moral responsibility? Mr. Barnes. Hello. Well, um, when I found I was uh, going to talk about criticism and uh, someone suggested the ethics of criticism, I, I was reminded of Bernard Shaw and H.G. Wells, who once met uh, at the English Speaking Union, I think, in London, and Wells said to Shaw, I hear you're giving a talk, what's it about? And Shaw said, ethics today, and Wells said, Ethics? I thought you lived in Sussex. But um, <laughs> certainly, uh, certainly, um, critics do not get a very good press. Uh, probably a good reason for that. I'm always reminded of that wonderful exchange in Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot. The two tramps, Vladimir and Estragon, are hurling insults at one another very desperately. They're trying to find the killer insult and these insults escalate up and up. And eventually one, could be Estragon, could be Vladimir, I forget which, threw at the other the word cretin. And the other one was visibly shaken. He really didn't know how to recover to this deadly insult, but he shook his shoulders and, re and reposted, critic. And um, it seems as though critics are not highly regarded in society. Uh, I once remember a Newsweek poll that put journalists so low down the list, we weren't quite as low as politicians, but we were almost down there. And one wonders how high critics would stand in any list of journalists. We are not exactly great communicators. And I notice that even the word to criticize, the verb, when we say, we don't say, when we say don't criticize me, we don't mean don't give me an honest, truthful analysis of my performance, we mean don't be so nasty to me. What are you saying to me? Stop criticizing. Stop criticizing me. Now, criticizing is not uh, a very nice phrase. And perhaps it's not a particularly nice occupation. I'm not sure. Certainly, I do believe that people in this country, perhaps particularly, take criticism in the wrong way. They take it far too seriously. Uh, now, I don't mean particularly the people who are criticized. It's very difficult 
to, to take anything not seriously that is aimed at your breadbasket. But, and that's what it is, let's face it, but uh, for the ordinary reader, the consumer of criticism, I think they take it too seriously. I think they regard it as much more than what it really is. I'm reminded many years ago when I was new to this country, I don't know, it must have been about 1966, 65, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was staying at one of those hotels that Washington, D.C. always seem to have. They're, all, they're hotels that are always absolutely, I think they, they come in with inbuilt running senators uh, and, and congressmen. They're all, they're all people who sit around having breakfast all day looking senatorial. And I went down to breakfast and I ought to point out that critics are by nature, we're, we're by nature, we're, we're voyeurs and we're eavesdroppers. We, we, we imagine that the whole world is some kind of vast entertainment put on for our particular pleasure. And we, we look at it in that light rather. And we, we are voyeurs, we are eavesdroppers. I've never actually got to the keyhole stage, but um, I, maybe I'm getting there. Certainly, when I'm in a crowded place, I listen to what people are saying, and, and I, you know, I sometimes disguise this with a newspaper. Usually, I'm listening. And um, on this occasion, I heard these two, these two leaders of government or captains of industry or whatever they were talking, and they were talking about a movie. It was a popular movie. I forget what it was, but it was a popular movie at the time. And uh, one guy said to the other, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And then the next day, I happened to go to my dentist. I picked up an old copy of Time magazine and found out I was wrong. Now, this struck me as so awful. I mean, he didn't, he didn't read the review in Time magazine and say, curse you, curse you, Time magazine, and throw it across the room. He very meekly thought he was wrong that he was wrong in enjoying this movie and that Time magazine, who had apparently excoriated it, was right. Well, it could have been anyone enjoying the movie, it could have been any critic excoriating it. But the point that must be made is that uh, the important thing, the important view, and I'll doubtless come back to this, is your own view. No one can tell you you enjoyed a show if you didn't, no one can tell you that, you that you didn't enjoy a show if you did. These are the facts, the important, the important thing, the important opinion is your opinion. Now, what do the critic do? Well, in the first place, we are all critics, every one of us. Uh, we go to a movie, we come out, uh, we're with a friend, we say we hated it, we say we loved it, we thought it was terrible, we thought that, that, the, that the leading actor should do time for it, uh, we thought that the leading actress needed a facelift. We, we um, do all this kind of back chat to one another. Sometimes we just say, eh, and in that eh, it will be sufficient to tell the person we're with exactly where we stood on that movie, exactly what we thought. 
Uh, every day we make critical choices with our television. Uh, there's no, no more marked critical choice than can be made in the arts and change in the channel. And we all, whether we know it or not, are making these choices, making these critical decisions every, every day. So what dis distinguishes the critic, the paid critic, uh, from us, from you? I suppose I am a paid critic. So what distinguishes the critic from you? Well, in the first place, I'm paid. Uh, not paid a great deal, but paid. Uh, and um, the, uh, that, of course, is a very big, big difference. Uh, when I say it's a big difference, I mean that we are professionally engaged in the business of criticism. I go to the theatre, well, now I've got a country place, so I only go eight times a week. But before I got, before I got a, 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 I, before my wife said, this is ridiculous, you must get away a couple of days. Uh, before then, I um, had, uh, I used to do ten performances a week. Now I do eight performances a week. Now, no one, no actor, no musician, no no anyone, not even a cartoon character, ever imagined that his work would be looked at, assessed, and reassembled for other people by someone who had already seen three plays that week, four ballets, uh, had, had seen uh, about six movies on, on, the, on, on the late night TV show. Um, a critic is someone apart partly because he's paid, but partly because he is almost over-doused in the thing he's criticizing. He sees a great, great deal. And one of our difficulties is the question of keeping our virginity alive. Uh, we have to be instant virgins. Every time has to be something new, something fresh. Our responses are terribly, terribly vital to us. Um, strangely enough, it can be done. We'd go mad if it couldn't. Uh, some of us do go mad and they take us away in boxes. But um, most of us, if we survive, do have this, this inbuilt quality, this quality of response. And it's very, very important that we keep it, that we keep it alive. Uh, it is said that critics get get better as they get older, more useful as they get older. I certainly hope that's true. But um, because I, I'm getting there uh, more rapidly than I ever thought would be possible. But um, on the other hand, uh, although as you get older, your experience gets wider, your uh, backlog of knowledge gets deeper, even more profound if we're lucky. But uh, your responses may go. You still have to have the first immediacy of response that you had when you first started to go to the theatre. Now, or look, went to your first art gallery or whatever it is you're supposed to be writing about. Now, what do we do? People always say, what do you have? Do you have standards? And large... Usually, I try not to have standards. I find standards are stand in the way of many, many things. Uh, because standards tend to be uh, that you know what is what and you are not open to, to the new and you are not open to uh, innovation. 
you know that a play should have three acts, you know that a sonnet should have 14 lines, you know that sonata form should be sonata form, etc., etc. So I think that you ought to be very flexible in standards. What we do have, what most of us have, whether we realise it or not, is we usually apply Goethe's famous three rules. Uh, now, um, Goethe said them in German, I don't know German, so I'll have to say them in English. They sound much, much classier in German. I've heard them in German. It's much better. But you'll have to take them in English. And Goethe's three rules for criticism were, what was the artist trying to do? That's a fairly objective view. Not entirely objective, but it's, fairly objective. it's a fairly objective question. Then, how well did he do it? Less objective, but obviously of vital importance. And many people are going to have very differing views of how well something was done. And then the kicker, which is almost entirely objective, uh, subjective, uh, and really the most important of the questions, was it worth doing? So those are the three questions. What was the artist trying to do? How well did he do it? Was it worth doing? Now, I'm not saying that the critic takes those, those questions and makes their kind of checklist and says, you know, boom, boom, boom. No, not at all. But those are the sort of ideas, the sort of concepts that are probably at the back of his mind when he rationalizes his opinion. And these, I suspect, are very similar to the sort of process that you have when you make what you think is an instinctive decision that whether you like something or whether you don't like it. If you really ask yourself how you came to that opinion, I think you'll find you probably went through those kind of questioning, that kind of background, I think is probably at the basis of all judgment on the arts. Now, the critic, of course, is very different. He's very different from the creative artist. The creative artist is a synthesist. He takes various things from his own life. He takes things from his own persona, his career, his environment, everything about him, and he puts them together. And from all these varying things, he produces an art object. The critic does completely the reverse. The critic is an analyst. He, the critic, takes his own environment, his own background, his own persona, everything rather like the artist. It's not that dissimilar a process. But instead of building something, he takes it apart, not destructively. He takes it apart so that he can demonstrate it to, to other people. Uh, this is where the symbiotic relationship between the artist and the critic has to really exist. Uh, this is where it can be of value to the art form that he or she is, is criticizing. Uh, it is in, when earlier, uh, when I was introduced, uh, it was suggested that I thought that the, uh, the critic should be a catalyst, a bridge between the artist and the, uh, and the, um, uh, the, the artist and the audience. This is exactly what I mean. By this analysis, a critic can point out things that, not because he's smarter than the general audience, but because of his specific, special knowledge, he may be able, and his special way of thinking, he may be able to pick out things 
that may be helpful to the audience and the artist in getting together, which is really the function of art. Kenneth Clark, uh, who uh, you may remember, he, he had a, a, um, a program on, on public television, a long-running program called Civilization. He was once asked what a critic was, and he said a critic was a man who stood up in front of a masterpiece and made noises. Well, I think that that is, that is a pretty useful definition. A man who stands up in front of a masterpiece and makes noises. Of course, he has to decide on his own masterpiece and he has to decide on his own noises. But uh, that is, um, to me, the vital, the vital thing. But how should critics be treated? I mean, gently, of course. And how should they be read? Because one of the difficulties I find about criticism is not so much the critics, although I'm not saying that we're, we're all uh, a great body of men and women. We're probably not. We're very human and very fallible. We're more human and more fallible than most human fallible people you're going to find. But the audience approach to us is usually not a good one. Too often, we are being used as a good housekeeping seal of approval. We're being used as racing tipsters. We're even being used as traffic cops, or even as censors. Uh, there was a magazine, and I complained actually to the editor about this, who advertised uh, its drama critic as someone who, who told you what plays not to go to see. Well. In actual fact, in the actual case of that drama critic, it was true. But on the other hand, the principle of the thing, the principle of the critic of the traffic cop, the principle of the critic of the censor, is absolutely terrible to my mind. What a critic is trying to do is to provide a bridge. He's not trying to be a censor. He's trying to give his opinion. He's trying to interest you. He's trying to say, look, this was worth my time. He's like a man standing on a street corner carrying a sign saying, the end of the world, the end of the world is, is, is nigh. Now, you may not actually believe that the end of the world is nigh, or you may actually believe that it is. But the fact that this man is standing on the street corner, he's probably a nut, and he's there in good weather and bad weather, but it does make you sometimes think that if it's worth his time to stand on the street corner, he's obviously he believes something quite deeply. And you may even think, well, perhaps the end of the world is nigh. Perhaps it is, there is something in what he's saying. And this, in a way, is the purpose of a critic. He's saying, look, uh, I don't know about you, but I saw a play the other night, and I thought it was really, really, really very wonderful. Or it really entertained me, it interested me. I think it might be worth your, your while. This, I think, is important. Now, when we talk about ethics, and um, I suppose, I always remember that when I used to talk and give lectures before Watergate, this question never came up. But after Watergate, it always came up. It's amazing. People say, are you ever bribed? Uh, now, this was a fascinating, it was, uh, I'm not using Watergate in any sense other than a watershed of American morals, but, um, 
it did seem to be a question that, uh, the answer is we're not, surprising actually, no one ever tries to bribe us, I don't know why, I, I often thought that, that, that we ought to get little, little sort of buttons made, we're cheaper than you think, but uh, we, 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 are, we are in fact, we're, no one ever, try, ever tries to, to, this is only true incidentally in the Anglo-American theatre, it's an odd, odd thing. In France, critics are not only bribed, they expect to be bribed, and it doesn't get you a good, a good notice, it just is a, is a custom, you, you, you give them a little bit of a pourboire, which I, you know, it's like, you know, in France you, you pay the person who, who, who takes you to your seat, so it's the same principle I suppose. Anyway, but the question of integrity, in, in a critic is not really a question of bribing. It's a question of uh, whether he can be flattered in other ways, you know, the kind of uh, artistic director who so much wants his advice, and it, there are many ways of getting around a critic. And um, so he has to be very careful about that. And also he has to remember that his opinion is a subjective one. He is not Moses coming down with the, with the tablets. He's not even the guy who gave Moses the tablet. Uh, he is, he is a, a very subjective human being. Um, you see, a work of art is not something you can be objective about. It's not like a fire. Uh, and I don't know whether any, any of you have ever tried to report a fire or listen to the kind of Rashomon accounts that you will get of what may seem like something that would be a factual thing that would be very easy to report. They're not easy to report. You do get very different conflicting things. And while, e even if a human being could objectively report a fire, I submit that only God could report a work of art. Uh, a work of art is something that is essentially a matter of subjectivity. But we are, we should expect our critics to have an informed opinion. I mean, it's very nice. If you are an interesting mind, a bright mind, a clever analytical mind, if you have a kind of critical sense, a critical nous, uh, you can write a review of Hamlet the first time you see Hamlet, and uh, it will be quite interesting, I promise you, if you've got that kind of mind. You can write an interesting review. And one of the lures uh, of critical writing, one of the uh, disadvantages of critical writing, and certainly one of the, one of the things that is very subject to the ethics and morality of critical writing is that nowadays, particularly in this country, we have the, the idea of the critic as a personality, the critic as a kind of mini-celebrity, the critic as an entertainer. Um, this is very true in this country and is even truer since the advent of television. I mean, you can go along any theatre uh, in any theatre on a first night and you can pick out the television critics at a glance 
on the aisle. They're, they're the cute ones. They're either the cute ones or the whimsical ones or the, uh, you know, the, the, the ink-stained wretches who, who produce the daily, the daily things, the, 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 anonymous, the anonymous wordsmiths. They're all ink-stained and cringing and dirty and uninteresting. The, the critics, the critics are, the, are the beautiful ones. The TV critics are the beautiful ones. Now, this is, I think, rather a worry. And also, it runs into print as well. Uh, the idea of the critic as an entertainer, as a personality, as a mini-celebrity. I remember once uh, I was in London and I was at a first night and uh, I was... Uh, I don't normally go to first nights in London. I, I don't like first nights anyway. Nowadays we don't have to go to them in New York, luckily, but in those days we used to. And I, I hate first nights. I hate the atmosphere. I hate everything about them. And... Um, Anyway, I found that I had to go to a first night in London. It was at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And uh, curiously enough, uh, some Americans in the audience, one or two of them recognized me. And although people wouldn't come up to you if they saw you in your hometown, when they see you abroad, they, they tend to think, you know, oh, there's Charlie or whatever. So uh, they, they saw me and uh, they came up and asked for my autograph. Well. You know, I, this didn't worry me. So a lot of people were, I was signing autographs. And then suddenly I saw along the, the aisle my former colleagues, because I used to work in London, my former colleagues, and they were falling about with laughter. The idea that anyone should ask a critic for an autograph, you know, struck them as the most crazy thing. And of course, once I saw them laughing, it struck me as so funny. And I found myself roaring, roaring with laughter. Uh, and no one, they couldn't understand why I was laughing and I was, you know, kind of chuckling away and saying, oh yes, <laughs> you know, what's your name, you know, very best witches, you know. Anyway, so, but it pointed to me one of the great dangers of the American system, this idea of the, the, the mini-celebrity and the way that so many of our TV critics particularly, but even in print, become clowns for the audience, more interested in their performance, more interested in what they have to say and the way they are saying it, rather than the work in question. And this, I think, is a very dangerous and very, and very, da very damaging to the art. The critic has got to be true to himself. Also, the critic has got to have a very important thing, compassion. Um, these things, partly because they're subjective, but partly because no one wants to write a bad play, no one wants to give a bad performance, no one wants to lose a million dollars on a movie or a hundred million dollars on a movie or whatever it is they're losing on movies these days. No one wants to goof up. And if you think they have goofed up, this is not an occasion for celebration. This is not an occasion for, for grave dancing. Uh, very young critics do like to draw attention to themselves very often by being unduly vicious. I remember when I was a very young critic, a much older critic took me to the side and said, what did the guy do to you? He didn't steal your wallet. He didn't run away with your wife. Why this personal, why this almost vendetta feeling? And I realized that I had just overreacted and it was to totally unnecessary. So I think compassion is very, very important. And also, I think that a critic must be honest with himself and with his public. 
We all have prejudices, very strong prejudices, and I think it's important that the, the critic shows himself as a human being if he's going to have any value whatsoever. When I first joined the Times, it was not the fashion to use the first person singular, and I insisted on using the first person singular because I felt that the third person uh, or those terrible circumlocutions they used to use in this critic's opinion, in this writer's opinion, or <coughs> said to a writer, all those kind of terrible Timesian circumlocutions, they were all intended to build up the concept of the writer, or rather the newspaper, as God, which is terribly bad, because we all have a bundle of prejudices which we carry with us. And it's important that the reader understand those prejudices if they are to get anything of value out of the criticism. I mean, for example, I happen to be a pacifist. I mean, I'm not the sort of pacifist who would let you hit my wife, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm a very weird kind of pacifist. Uh, I'm not even certain that I disagree with a nuclear de deterrent. But it's, so it's a complex kind of pacifism, mine. But I'm fiercely uh, convinced that killing people is wrong, and I was naturally a, com a, a total dove in the, in the Vietnam uh, insurgency, uh, whatever that was. And uh, consequently, when we had Vietnam Wars, uh, I was obviously on the side of the doves, and it would have been extremely difficult for me to perhaps have given a fair review of any play that was, took a hawkish view on Vietnam. Matter of fact, I don't recall any play that did, oddly enough, which only goes to prove the, the, the incredible crushing weight of the liberal establishment. But um, it would have been very difficult for me to, to have given a view, but I hope uh, that I would have explained my own my own background in that, perhaps by some simple phrase, but somehow given some idea, because those kind of prejudices are very, very important. So these are all the things you have to take into account when you are reading criticism. What is this man trying to tell me? It is, is he, just because he didn't like it, perhaps I would, just because he did like it, Perhaps I wouldn't. Uh, I always know, I once had a, a letter from a guy who wrote to me and said, Dear Mr. Barnes, I think you're the most useful critic I know because when you like something, I know I wouldn't, and when you dislike something, I know I would. <laughs> and um, I could understand that. And also, it is always a pleasure to be able to send someone, uh, someone to somewhere where, that you yourself didn't like. There's a kind of achievement to be done there, I think. Anyway, I, I think the question of ethics, the question of integrity with the critic is a serious one. I think it's one that the critic has to be absolutely honest to himself, absolutely honest. He mustn't try to be modish. He mustn't try to follow the newest trend. He, if he's going to be conservative, let him be conservative. There's a terrific difficulty in being conservative in the arts. Uh, and yet, as a critic grows older, he will probably find that he, like his politics, he, his, his artistic views are likely to move to the right. If they do move to the right, so be it. It will help him not at all to jump onto what he conceives to be the nearest bandwagon. He'd much better be true to, true to himself and true to his own opinions. And this is what, this is the message that I think 
I can only leave you as you are yourself critics. Don't be stampeded by fashion. Don't think that because uh, 20 million people think something is good, doesn't mean it is good. A thing is good only if you think it's good. Your own opinion is the important thing. Remember that art is not a question of lowest common denominator vote. We do have a wonderful example of lowest common denominator art in our midst. It's called television. Now, television is an art form that depends only on ratings. It doesn't matter, uh, as far as the networks are concerned, it doesn't matter whether the, whether the people who are running that network think a show is good or think a show is bad. If it hasn't got the ratings, it won't survive. And you have something called lowest common denominator art. You see, lowest common denominator art is not necessarily the best of arts. I don't knock it but it's not necessarily the best. And you've got to remember that although, and this was always very difficult for me uh, with, with socialist leanings to understand and to comprehend, you've always got to remember that although the arts are for all the people, not all the people are for the arts, and that the arts are, to a very large extent, a minority a minority opinion, a minority interest. And it's best that everyone, critics included, recognize and remember this. I've already talked too long. Thank you very much, and we have some questions. Thank you, Mr. Barnes. To read the faces uh, of these people gathered here today and to hear their applause is to know that it's been a very special time with you thus far. Uh, I think I can say without fear of contradiction that this is the best appearance you've ever made here. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll be very surprised if you get out of here without someone asking you for an autograph. <laughs> Let me remind our radio audience that you are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Our speaker for the past half hour has been Mr. Clive Barnes, noted dance and drama critic. And we are delighted and pleased by the support and help and co-sponsorship we've received for this program from the Dayton Hudson Foundation, B. Dalton Bookseller, Dayton's, and Target. Some of you who had to leave have already done so, uh, so we've begun to settle down again. We do encourage you to send any questions that you might have to the aisles, and the ushers will pick them up. And may I ask you, Mr. Barnes, to return to the podium, and let's... Uh, start having a good time with, with a few questions. If you don't have any questions, I'll, 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 I'll have a few of my own. And they're, they're, they're always better when I ask them because I know the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a few Oh, you've here. got a few. You've got a few. All right. Let me ask you this. You can feed in your own, too. How did the critic critiquing of the arts begin? Did Euripides wait all night at a public bath for reviews to come in? 
I don't think so, but I do imagine that that uh, you, that there have always been uh, critics. There've always been people are talk will always talk about the theatre just the same as they will always talk about politics, and those that talking about theatre will eventually turn to the voicing of opinions, and the voicing of opinions will eventually turn to criticism. Mm -hmm. So uh, Euripides may not have waited overnight at the bars, but uh, certainly someone gave it to him in the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. While we're still waiting for a few questions to come from the audience, let me share with you the fact that I spoke with a local actress uh, just yesterday who could not be here today, and I asked her if she had a question to put to you, and she said, well, not so much a question as an opinion, and they got sort of a, a hard look in her eye, but then she said, ask him if he sees as part of his function that of encouraging and strengthening the theater. Uh, yes, I certainly see <laughs> a part of my function encouraging and strengthening the theater. I don't think there's any critic who doesn't. It's rather like, uh, so here once said to me, I know what a critic does, he sells tickets, that's the function of a critic. And I said, absolutely, you're absolutely right, so. Uh, but you've got to let me decide which tickets I want to sell. And um, of course, we naturally feel uh, the, the need to, to be, uh, to strengthen the theater. But of course, um, people's views of what goes to strengthen the theater are likely to be as varied as the theater itself. Another question from the audience. It's said that every human being needs feedback. What sort of feedback do critics themselves need? Uh, well, we need feedback, and good heavens, we get it. Uh, I, I've probably been more harshly criticized, even in print, than anyone I have actually criticized. Uh, and uh, yes, it's, uh, it's quite, it's, and of course, we do get a lot of mail. Uh, I, 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 some of it obscene, um, some of it very obscene. Uh, and um, I, I've had some quite disgusting mail sent to me. And, um, but um, we do get a lot, of, we do get a lot of, of, of mail, we do get a lot of feedback. It is naturally, uh, criticism is something people feel very strongly about and they do react to it, of course. Uh, here's a kind one. Uh, when you have totally panned a performance, and your critique has caused the production to fold, do you suffer remorse or feel useful to society? That <laughs> <laughs> it is not critics who kill shows, it's producers who kill shows. Now, one of the, it producers who close shows, it producers who stop box offices. Now, one of the reasons why producers kill shows, the critics do have a contributing factor. But they are not the only factor. The power of the critics is vastly overrated. It's vastly overrated by producers who don't want to take responsibility for their own actions and very often do not have the belief and conviction in their own product. I can tell you many shows running on Broadway today, I'm Not Rappaport, for example, which generally speaking got bad notices but went on to, to win the Critics' Prize. I'm not sure. Did it win the Pulitzer? I'm not sure. But I'm not Rappaport, it did extremely well. I think I was, I, I, I'm saying this, this makes me sound like a good guy, so, so why not? I, I think I was the only person who liked it. And I liked it very, with very uh, muted thing. I said this is the kind of commercial thing that should do very well on Broadway, and it did. But, uh, but that, uh, but the, um, 
the power of the critics is really very much overrated by producers. What do you think of Woody Allen? What do I think of Woody Allen? Uh, he's a nice little man. Um, I, I, I think that, the, the, you know, what do you, what do you think of Michelangelo? I, I don't know. Uh, when did you stop beating your wife? It's one of those questions that, that is very difficult to answer in, a, in, in anything shorter than a book. But um, I, I think that, that Alan is very interesting in that he has uh, a very New York sensibility and uh, a mixture of, of New York nebbishness and, and uh, I don't know, Strindberg misery. Uh, so um, I, I, I like him. I, I, I'm in favor of Woody Allen. All right. What is your definition of postmodern dance, and what choreographers and dance companies are doing the most exciting work, in your opinion? Ah. Well, I don't really have a definition of postmodern dance. Uh, I, I, I'm only just about up to modern dance. Uh, but I'm sensible enough to, to hyphenate modern dance because I think you can't call anything modern that's been going on for 90 years. So, um, but postmodern is a, is a phrase that has come to mean uh, minimal, very often minimalist dance where people just stand around doing nothing or stand around doing very little. I am extremely suspicious of uh, any, dan any dancers who do what I could do in my bathtub. Uh, and uh, I, I am very, very suspicious of, um, I'm very sus I, I, generally speaking, I'm always suspicious of people who do things I can do myself. Uh, I, d I don't think I ought to pay for that kind of stuff. Uh, but um, I, I think that, um, that, generally speaking, I think a, a great amount of postmodern dance is uh, Emperor's New Clothes time. I think a lot of it is pure fakery. Uh, fakery on the part of the, of the dancers themselves. I mean, I think they take themselves in before they start on the audiences. And um, I, you know, I, I feel that most of the interesting modern dance is still being done by uh, the people who still have considerable technique and uh, are willing to demonstrate that in public. This blends in with something you just said. Is the critic a frustrated artist? Are you? If so, what art field are you attracted to? No, I have no uh, talent whatsoever. I, I found this out very early. Um, one of the things that attracted me to criticism was that I did have no creative talent. Um, I'm not an unfulfilled playwright. I'm not an unfulfilled actor. I'm not an unfulfilled dancer. I'm a totally fulfilled critic. I love what I'm doing. I wouldn't be doing anything else. I love going to the theater. I go to the theater every night of my life, and I sit there, and the curtain goes up, and I, I think, amaze me. And it is the best life in the world for me. Most people it would seem crazy, uh, and, uh, but for me, it's, it's absolutely terrific. And um, so, uh, no, I, I, I'm not frustrated in that way. Other ways, but not that way. <laughs> I have seen the exquisite book that you authored on uh, Rudolf uh, Nureyev. Would you care to uh, comment on him and your enthusiasm for him? Uh, well, I think Nureyev was uh, uh, one of the most important uh, dancers of this century. 
Uh, he was one of the people, one of the megastars, along with people like Fontaine, Baryshnikov, Makarova, who in the last 10 years have been able to capitalize on the new popularity of dance and give it a, a kind of jet assist, a jet boost in a very significant way. I think the popularity of that dance of, of dance is not entirely due to people like Nureyev, nothing like. Um, I think it's much more due to the visual nature of the new audience, the visual nature that has been created by television being the most popular form of communication rather than words. People accustomed to visual images have made dance a much more acceptable and much more vital method of communication and a method of artistic expression than it has ever been before in, in recorded history. But I think that men like Nureyev have done a great deal and one of the reasons I was fascinated by Nureyev is that I was able to watch virtually his entire career as a dancer and partly as a director and I found that he was symptomatic of a whole generation of dance and a whole way of looking at dance and I found him interesting from that particular point of view. Are you familiar with our local theater, the, the Guthrie, Mixed Blood? Have you any opinion about Minneapolis-St. Paul Theater? Uh, I am uh, slightly familiar about the, with, with the Guthrie, not that familiar, I mean <coughs> um, I'm not as familiar as I, as I should be. One of the difficulties that uh, I think we have uh, in looking at American theater is that we now have more American actors and this happened about all oh, probably about 10 years ago or more we have more uh, more union members outside New York than inside New York and this is a, obviously a irreversible trend and there is much more interesting theater going on outside New York probably than inside New York and yet uh, all of our critics wherever we come from tend to be very isolated and very insulated we are all provincial critics unfortunately and very few of us have the time uh, or the ability, uh, when I say ability, I don't mean <laughs> ability, I mean the, 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 the uh, papers that will send us, or the, chiefly a matter of time, though, to cover the, the nation as a whole. So I haven't seen a great deal, of, uh, but I have seen enough of the theatre. I saw it under Tuley, I saw it under Langham, uh, and I have always been impressed. This, the Tyrone Gasserie has always been regarded as one of the bellwether companies of the of the nation since it's since it started when was it 63 64 and um, I, I, I've seen a lot of performances here and I've always admired it I, I, I love the building I love the company I love the way that that, that uh, it has consistently attempted an ensemble style of acting uh, whether under its various artistic directors uh, an ensemble style of acting and tried to persuade actors to make a full-time, long-term commitment to the theatre, which I think is very, very valuable. Thank you. Another question from the audience. Can't we have good drama and the like without all the four-letter words and explicit sex? Has it gone too far? Uh, I don't know. Um, these things are very much a matter of taste. Uh, when we first when we first had the four-letter words coming across the footlights, I was uh, absolutely amazed. Uh, not because I hadn't heard the words, uh, but because I'd never heard them in the theatre, and it struck me as absolutely quite extraordinary. Uh, 
and I remember the first play was a play by Bruce J. Friedman called Scuba Duba. And I wrote about this, and uh, I mentioned the language, and I said it was frequently obscene. I liked the play, and it, it didn't worry me, but why should my susceptibilities, you know, be... Anyway, I got a, a letter from, from, from a woman who was obviously deeply disturbed by this, by this and wrote and said that she was, she was very upset by this play and upset that I had, I had recommended it. And uh, she had taken, I, I, she, rather a curious expression, she had taken her maiden sister to it. Uh, literally, those were the words used. It struck me as odd at the time. Uh, and she told her maiden sister, and she had been shocked as well, and why didn't I warn, warn them of this terrible play? So I instantly fired a letter back saying, I, sorry, madam, but I did say that it was frequently obscene. And she instantly wrote back and said, but you didn't say how obscene. Well, good. <laughs> the, the, the simple fact is that I, I couldn't say how obscene in a family newspaper. And... Um, uh, I, I don't know about, about words. Sticks and stones will break my bo bones. Hard words will never hurt me. And dirty words have never hurt me, I must admit. Uh, and I am totally uh, out of countenance with, with censorship of any kind. Uh, I, I believe that, that uh, any kind of censorship can lead to political censorship. And uh, on the other hand, I realise that my, that my views are, again, the views of uh, a minority... Uh, and a uh, very vocal uh, minority, uh, and I, other people have a right to be heard. What I do feel is that I find uh, that, I mean, no one goes to Calcutta imagining they're going to see uh, a play about Indian famine. But I, I do find that sometimes uh, when nudity is gratuitously brought in or when language is gratuitously used, I think perhaps there should be some kind of warning. I think some kind of warning outside the theatre, which is often used in England, I notice, I think is, is a, a thing. But I don't think that people should be censored. I think when you have soldiers uh, and you have to use uh, euphemisms for, four letter, for the four-letter words that they would use, uh, you know, there's the famous Tallulah Bankhead remark to Norman Mailer, which I cannot possibly repeat, but it was to do with the naked and the dead and the fact that he couldn't spell a certain word. Uh, and uh, I think that, that the, the fact is that we are realistic enough to realise that language is language and that words don't mean anything except what we mean them to mean. A word in itself is not obscene. Maybe distasteful. I'm curious, writes uh, another person in the audience, why you say most critics move right as they age. It makes me sad. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Uh, I think most people move to the right, I think, if they're honest with themselves. I'm sure some don't. But I think most people uh, tend to find that uh, some, of the, uh, some of the things that they, that they believed... I think that... I think what, what critics do have to be very careful about is uh, deciding something when they're 24 and hanging on to that decision for the rest of their lives. I think that when a critic 
or any political commentator or anyone who commits his opinion to the public prints or makes a statement about anything, he, it's very difficult for them to develop uh, in public, as it were. And we all do develop, we all do change our minds. We change our minds about artists, we change our minds about this and that. I personally, when I say I move to the right, uh, I move very gingerly to the right. I don't think anyone would regard me as conservative. I, I think that, that, I mean, uh, let me say it, Senator McCarthy could still have me imprisoned. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I, I'm not exactly right, right wing, but I think that Yes, as time goes on, in, in all areas one, one does, I think, move towards the conservative. You said at the beginning of the question period that you had a lot of good questions for yourself. <laughs> Pick your favorite and comment on it. My favorite, well, I suppose my favorite is this question of the power of the critic. And, but I did really mention that earlier. So I think that the, the question that is, is a very fair question is, what makes you think that your opinion is so interesting that it's worth uh, giving to other people? Uh, the answer is arrogance. I mean, one can wrap it up a bit. That is the honest answer. But I do think that um, you've got to remember that, you, that critics are arrogant people. Uh, that they would have to be arrogant to imagine that their opinions are of any value to anyone else other than themselves. But that said, and that, that proviso said, uh, you've also got to remember that they do stimulate interest in the arts. Uh, you may disagree with them, you may, you may think they're idiots. This doesn't matter. They're fulfilling their function even when you think they're, they're idiots. Uh, what they are really doing is they are trying to stir interest. They're trying to make you slightly different by showing you things that will make you slightly better. That's the ideal. The ideal of art is to leave a person better than it found him. Uh, that is the function of art at the highest. Uh, the critic is trying in a humble way, which comes out extraordinarily arrogant, but in a humble way, is trying to provide a guidebook to that excellence, offering a few pointers in that direction. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Clive Barnes, for a very special hour. Thank you. <laughs>